Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. Silberti recording in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. In this monthly podcast, we will be featuring guests from many different backgrounds that use dynamic thinking and psychotherapeutic interventions to bring about change and growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experience in groups, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you take a listen and would like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes, as well as to use the Amazon banner ad that is featured on our webpage, www.cogps.org. If you click through the Amazon banner ad, it does not cost you anything, but we do get some commission change, which helps us with some of the costs associated with putting on the show. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at forward slash CO group psych. The links to our profiles can also be found on our website. Also, if you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for featured guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at coloradogroups at gmail.com. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events or our annual conference. So I'm your host, Angelo, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. Today we are very fortunate to be offering an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Olson. As many of you know, Dr. Elizabeth Olson is an incredibly engaging and one-of-a-kind clinician who really blends a number of different approaches, including modern psychoanalysis, DBT, with neuroscience and attachment theory. So every time I speak with Elizabeth, I walk away having learned so much, and this afternoon is no different. In the interview, we get to cover her story of getting involved in counseling and psychology, we talk more about the repetition compulsion and group psychotherapy as a unique opportunity for working with a repetition compulsion. She talks about balancing a modern analytic view with behavioral approaches like DBT, as well as her exciting new project with the Collective for Psychological Wellness. So without further ado, Dr. Elizabeth Olson. dispatch today, we have Dr. Elizabeth Olson. Dr. Olson has been facilitating groups for over 20 years. She has worked with adolescents and adults in both long-term psychotherapy groups and dialectical behavior therapy skills training groups. In addition to the psychotherapy groups that Dr. Olson facilitates in her private practice, she also facilitates a supervision group for psychotherapists. Along with her husband, Dr. Francis Kaklauskas, she facilitates the group training program at the University of Colorado at Boulder's Counseling and Psychiatric Services. She has been a longtime member of the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Dr. Olson is also an avid supporter of group psychotherapy. She believes that this therapeutic medium is a highly transformative and challenging approach 
to psychological treatment. Dr. Elizabeth Olson, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Angelo. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So in full disclosure, to start off the interview, um, I wanted to just acknowledge that I have had the very fortunate opportunity to be supervised by you for seven years. True. True. Yes. So there's that, which yes. will probably account for kind of a familiar tone to this interview. Um, but this is also going to give me just a great opportunity for us to talk more about the things that I think you and I both really love and mm -hmm. find fascinating together. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So the first thing I thought I might ask is for you to tell us a little bit about your story, how you got into psychology, how you got into counseling, and in particular, you know, how that led you into group psychotherapy. Yeah. <coughs> well, um, let's see where to start. I got into psychology um, when I was a student at Naropa um, in 1992, I think is when I started there. And um, I was really interested in dance and Gabrielle Roth's five rhythm work. And I um, got interested in psychology as well at that time. And so I started studying dance therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, I really found for myself that working with the body and working with movement was really healing for me in conjunction to doing my own therapy at that time. Um, when I was younger, my father died when I was about four. Cool. And um, so I think I had, you know, what we know about trauma for children is that when you have a really significant loss at an early time in your life, each stage that you go through developmentally, you process it in another way that, you know, as a four-year-old, you can't process it in the same way that you can as a 20 two or 23 year old. And so I found that <coughs> when I was about 19 or 20, I just really couldn't do the traditional schooling and Naropa was a great option for me. And so I found through my own education, my own healing at the same time. And it was very um, inspiring, motivating for me to want to go forward and be that for other people also. Mm -hmm. So I started off with um, dance therapy and I worked a lot with um, adolescents in the beginning as a line staff so I worked at the mental health center in Boulder and did day treatment um, with kids and I got to help them with theater and I got to bring some movement into the work that I was doing with them and then I got accepted to the University of Washington social work program and so I moved to Seattle and did that program for two years, which was just a rich, wonderful experience for me. Opened a lot of eyes and great training. Um, one of my favorite professors was John Conti and um, just learned a lot. I remember he told a story about his interest in psychoanalysis and um, he got us, he kind of introduced me to the concepts of transference and counter-transference. So he was your first introduction? He was that, uh, yeah, he was. And, um, so I uh, studied there and then went on to do a postmaster's fellowship at Berkeley for a year where um, I got to have the experience essentially of working in a college counseling center with young people. And um, again, I got very blessed and fortunate to have an amazing supervisor there who um, is named Deborah Begley and she was psychodynamic and psychoanalytic as well. And so I kept kind of getting drawn to the right places for me that felt like a match working with people more in that long-term way. 
and in a lot of depth, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so um, I came back to Colorado after that. My husband Francis was here. And, um, you know, while I was at school, I did study group a little bit. And when I was um, working as a line staff, I ran positive peer culture groups, which was sort of a form of torture for me and the kids, I would mm -hmm. say. It was two hours of group, three hours a week. Um, I mean, three times a week. So it's basically six hours of group a week. And it was really, really difficult, these groups that we would do. And so I got um, the experience of what it was like to at least hold a container, even though I really didn't have any training in group. It was very intense. Um, so that was my initial introduction. And then I came back to Colorado after finishing all my schooling and started working again with adolescents and families and became a treatment leader eventually at Denver Children's Home where I was supervised by Jerry Yeager um, and he really taught me a lot about attachment and kind of relational depth psychotherapy and the importance of um, neuropsychology in terms of um, working with these kids who are really traumatized and how to think about what the best interventions might be for them and also with their families from a more attachment and I think also in terms of the brain levels of stimulation and regulation. So this was kind of the introduction for me into that as well. And I did run long-term groups for many years with um, boys and girls in Denver Children's Home, which were very powerful. So what kind of format did those groups take? Um, it was long-term psychotherapy, uh -huh. and then we also did some DBT with them as well. I did a training with Marsha Linehan in 2002 and then created a DBT program at Denver Children's Home that um, I would say really turned things around. It was a combination and this is really I think where I got my grounding and how I work even now is kind of a behavioral approach where helping kids to get better regulated behaviorally but also the psychodynamic relational piece and how important I think the two are together. Mm -hmm. So. And at that time, I also got into supervision with Bob Unger and um, got introduced to modern psychoanalysis at that time. And uh, that was just opened a whole world for me that was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think I started going to the American Group Psychotherapy Association. And um, I think it was at about that time also that we developed kind of as a group together, the Colorado Group Psychotherapy, uh, yeah, Society or Association. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> so, so you were really around from the earliest days of the Colorado Group Society? Yes, oh. yeah. Mm -hmm. Bill Sell and Francis Klauskas and Bob Unger were kind of the spearheads for it. And then, um, you know, we just were kind of the worker bees, the group of us that started off then. And we put conferences together and got the ball rolling for our local society mm -hmm. so yeah it was great it sounds great I mean one of the things I'm struck by is the breadth of experience that you had early on I mean both when you were in an educational setting that you were learning really a variety of different approaches from dance to psychodynamic mm -hmm. and psychoanalytic to even later on attachment and more behavioral approaches so it sounds like early in your career you just had you had a, a, a wide spectrum of theory to draw from I did, yeah. and lots of training opportunities. I think, you know, in my work as a group therapist and 
even just as an individual therapist, I think that training is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I think more than almost anything else, it really depends on you getting and really committing to a good training program with multiple, you know, multiple supervisors, I would say, mm -hmm. your own treatment, um, and then getting you know, a wide range of experience if you can to be able to really bring that to your work with clients. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of really um, training with mentors that you felt very connected to. I and really did. really respect that you had a tremendous amount of respect for them. Yes. Which is, I think, exactly how I felt about you. Thank you. <laughs> it's how I feel about you, too. I feel like it's a really good relationship. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does go both ways. Right. Well, it seems like it's a lineage in a way. I mean, I'm hearing that you've really um, had the honor of studying with some incredible people, and now that's something it seems like you're passing on to to uh, new generations. It's important to me. Yeah. I think it's really important because training has been, I would say, the biggest thing for me in my profession and my career development, and I would say, I would hope I could give that back to people. Well, I think you do a, a phenomenal job with it. Thank you. As a, as a part of your training, when did you start to be actually a part of groups? It sounds like you were leading groups, you know, these positive peer culture groups mm -hmm. and the therapy groups at Denver Children's Home, the behavioral groups. What about your experience actually being a part of a group? I would say it was twofold. Um, I pretty quickly, when I moved back to Boulder, joined a supervision group with Bob Unger, mm -hmm. and I was in that group for, I think, 11 or 12 years. Um, and it was wonderful. It was such a good um, opportunity to have an experience of the process of group as well as, um, you know, getting very specific feedback about how to intervene as a group leader. So for me, it was a really rich, wonderful experience. And then one of the other ways that I really got a lot of experience as well was through going to AGPA and mm -hmm. participating in the institutes every year. So, um, you know, from at AGP, I've done anything from two-year continuous groups, three-year continuous groups to, you know, a wide range of different thematic groups that are offered. Um, so I would say that that's the primary way that I've had the introduction and the experience of what it's like to be in group. How would you say being a group member has informed you as a group leader? Oh, gosh. It's been so important. <laughs> I remember my first group at AGPA got myself wildly scapegoated. I really, I was coming very new onto the scene of group and studying modern psychoanalysis and Spotnitz. And one of the themes of Spotnitz is just say everything, just say it all. And um, I didn't know that in group you're actually supposed to study everything and study your reactions and study your impulses and think sometimes before you speak. And um, I got myself into a heap of trouble with a room full of like 30 people in an institute. And it was such a painful, um, almost traumatic experience that I, um, by saying too much, really, I said too much. And I had to learn the hard way through kind of fire, you could say, what to say and what not to say. And I can remember in my experiences after that group that even as a group member, I really learned how to help people who are getting themselves scapegoated and I think that that was really useful to me in groups just to kind of help and and do some educating with people when they are first coming in or when I'm first starting a group really trying to titrate the levels of stimulation so that it's not so overwhelming for people and they don't kind of blow themselves out in group hopefully mm -hmm. you can't always be helped you know there's some there's a group member that I have recently who 
um, was talking about how group is kind of a baptism, that when you join a therapy group, there comes a point where you're going to get feedback, it's going to be really hard to hear, and you're going to have the very strong desire to leave that group and never come back. And um, my group members talk about what that's like to go through that, and the ones who can kind of stick through it and keep coming to group anyway, even though it's really hard and it's really difficult, the feedback that they're getting about themselves, um, you know, that that is, uh, it's just really challenging to get through that piece of it. So, yeah. but um, trying to help people regulate their stimulation as much as possible. So it's enough that they are getting an good experience from it and it's hard and challenging but not so much that it blows them out if possible. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the experience of having been scapegoated in a group gives you a really visceral appreciation for when that might be happening to somebody else and yeah. really actively intervening to join with them or to facilitate them coming into the group in a way that's not going to attract so much aggression. I think so and I think for me it was also learning about the repetition of creating overstimulation and so I think um, that that's something that also I think about in addition to scapegoating is just how to help people not get overstimulated in group. Because mm -hmm. when I did that, it was um, extraordinarily stimulating for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you had the sense that some of that, I mean, we're actually, it sounds like we're kind of thinking along the same lines because I was just associating to <coughs> the repetition compulsion and how I think you really make that a centerpiece of your work. And I, I guess I wonder, were, are, were you saying that you think that there was some repetition in that for you, kind of going into a group and getting that level of stimulation? I, you know, it's hard for me to say for sure because it was one of my first kind of process group experiences and I don't think I ever recreated that again because mm -hmm. I learned it so well the first time. Um, but I would say that in my life, sure, there's ways that I repeat high levels of stimulation. Yeah. And um, it's been a constant process of learning how to dial the, that down so that it doesn't have to be such an active part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been something that I, that's just been a huge piece that I've drawn from our supervision is really appreciating the strength of the repetition compulsion. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I was thinking is, would you be willing to say a little bit about what the repetition compulsion is for people who might not be familiar with that idea, as well as the kind of opportunity that group psychotherapy offers in order for working with the repetition compulsion. Yeah, I mean, I think that group is the most powerful way to work on it. And I've just come to see in my own work um, with clients and also personally that the thing that has makes the most change for people, I think, to be able to identify the types of patterns that you recreate unconsciously in your relationships with other people. It can be in family, it can be in group, it can be in individual therapy, it can be in all different parts of your life, career, um, school, any kind of interaction that you're having with other people, there's the potential for these unconscious patterns to arise, I think. And so I've just really been fascinated by them. And uh, repetition compulsion, initially, one of the ways that it's, um, identified as, as a um, defense mechanism. And I think that in my own work, I don't necessarily see it as much as a defense, but more as just kind of a natural process that I think people get into based on early experiences that they've had. And these early experiences can be as early as the first year of life, the first couple months of life, maybe even in utero. So they tend to be more procedurally based 
meaning that they are alive in our amygdalas, so the part of our brain that doesn't always, it's kind of the home for unprocessed experience in a way. And it's the kind of experience that you don't think about too much. And I don't really think that um, just having insight about it changes it. I don't think that just bringing on the prefrontal cortex or the more frontal parts of the brain necessarily help us stop these patterns. And so that's sort of why it's become such an interest of mine and why I think group can be so powerful. When you're just doing individual therapy with someone, you get one view of that person and they get one view of you. And so it's one particular type of transference. And within that transference, many different kinds of things can come alive and come out. But if you really want to do more dynamic work and learn even more about yourself, then you join a group. And the group gives you the opportunity to have a multitude of transferences. So um, it opens up the door for all different self-states to come out, all different parts of who you are with different people. So it makes a much more dynamic opportunity, I think, for the repetitions to come out in the relationship. Kind of a broader <coughs> opportunity. I think so. And, you know, it's really um, based on one's experience early on, the quality of the relationships that people had in their early life, um, the types of stimulation that they experienced, the kinds of insulation that they got to be able to modulate the stimulation. All of these things are um, how I think we organize our characters early on. And then they come alive whether we want them to or not in our relationships. And so group is an opportunity to allow these things that are unconscious that might shock or surprise us or that we may not be at all aware of, or we might even know about them but not be able to stop ourselves from changing them. And then you get into group and you have these kind of wild, you know, real experiences where these strong feelings come up and people start to remind you of other people in your life or um, you start to feel the same way that you feel in other parts of your life. But the difference is that you can go in and you can talk about it and you can say, here's what I'm noticing. This is what's happening. What you wouldn't necessarily do in a social situation, you can do in group. And you're doing that in an environment with other people that are really interested in helping you to understand yourself better. And they're interested in understanding themselves better. And there's this collaborative process that happens. And you have a group leader who's hopefully being studying the repetitions and the patterns and you know, working to help people have some new experiences. So um, I'm really interested in studying the repetition and the procedural experience, but then I'm also interested in intervening with it at a limbic level rather than at a more cognitive level. So sometimes there's some cognitive understanding about what might be happening, but my sense is that um, people really change the most when they have an actual new experience that's different from what happened before. And so sometimes that means that clients say something new. So they have a progressive communication where something new comes out of them that's said in a way that's different and that maybe an emotion is coupled with it that helps them to have a new feeling or a new um, emotional experience in the room. Uh, in addition, I believe that progressive communication can happen from other group members as well as the therapist. So new things might get said to the person in group that you know, they didn't have that experience early on. Mm -hmm. And that can be, I think, tremendously healing. And when these things happen, you actually rewire the brain. 
so the procedural experience doesn't have to stay stuck in the amygdala where you just keep repeating it over and over again. Um, it actually becomes processed in a way that it maybe hasn't been before and opens up the possibility for things to be really different in one's life. So I've had clients who um, have come in and they have been very reluctant to want to um, feel their anger maybe because early on anger was a really dangerous thing for them. There might have been really traumatic, abusive things that had gone on in their lives that made them really want to shy away from it and maybe they were afraid of how destructive their own anger could be. And so um, through the process of sticking with group and staying in it, they can begin to test it out and see what it's like to let themselves put words to the aggressive feelings that are coming up in them and to find a way to do it that's safe and not gonna you know, kill or destroy somebody or um, attack them, but actually find a way to communicate it that's gonna be productive and effective. And um, what ends up happening when they're doing that in group is that they develop this kind of confidence in themselves. I think they feel more whole because they're no longer trying to kind of shove away this part of themselves that's natural. I think it's natural for us to feel aggression and to have aggressive feelings, but they are now kind of making friends with it and getting more able to um, channel it in ways that are very constructive for them. And so I've had clients who have just gone out into the world and become so much more confident and they address conflicts head on, they find ways to talk about what their feelings are that they might have just sh tried to shove away before and they're starting to see the value in having it out sometimes with people that they're close with or um, you know, being able to stick up for themselves or assert what they want where before they might have just kind of taken it over and over again mm -hmm. when someone was overpowering them or pushing them around that's not gonna happen now. Because mm -hmm. they're more willing to speak up. Yeah. And they've gotten that message from you and from the group members that yeah. it's okay to speak up. That's right. And yeah. so ways that I do that on a procedural level with people is my tone of voice. So mm -hmm. I'll sometimes talk in a really tough tone, sometimes sound a little angry, sometimes yell in group, um, sometimes command, you know, give commanding kinds of interventions. And, um, you know, push people a little bit to um, see that they can take what, I, what they're feeling from me and have that inside themselves also. So I might sometimes sound angry, but be saying really loving things at the same time to someone. Mm -hmm. um, so. Mm -hmm. So, and it just reminds me, I, I remember actually hearing you say that individual therapy uh, one way to look at it is that it's a great preparation for being in a group and it sounds like uh, you hold individual therapy in such a way that a client can build enough ego strength to be able to be in a group but considering they're going to come into this group where all sorts of thoughts and feelings and intense transferences and multiple trans transferences are going to be developing how do you as a group leader kind of evaluate a person's readiness to be in that kind of setting oh my god that is such a good question Angelo and it is a really hard one to answer. Um, it is so difficult to know um, if someone's gonna make it or not. And you can try it and hope that they can. Um, it's so interesting, you know, how to be able to tell this, but um, I think having had any past experience of being in any kind of group is sometimes helpful and insulating. Because one of the things that you can just expect when someone comes into a group is that they're going to be shocked. 
and I try to it's gonna be shocking for the group and it's gonna be shocking for the person because the group has had their kind of cohesive way of relating and when someone new comes in it's you know they've had fantasies about who this new person is gonna be and when they come in it's never really like what the fantasy is and so there's typically some level of shock that and disappointment sometimes excitement uh -huh. <laughs> sometimes uh -huh. it's disappointment uh -huh. and sometimes it's like great oh, no yeah. we're glad you're here yeah, totally. you know um, and then um, for the person coming in it's extremely shocking and they also have a fantasy about what this group is going to be and they come in and it's very different you know for sure than what they were expecting so um, I try to do three sessions at least before someone comes into a group it's helpful if they've had some experience with free association um, I try to assess for how they seem like they can handle conflict and aggression um, and my groups and I have been talking about should I warn them or not about how hard it is and I'm you know I've been trying warning people and trying to say look there's gonna come points where you really feel like you don't want to be here and the idea is that's when good things are happening and you're gonna want to if you can stick with it even though you really feel like mm -hmm. leaving and, um, and that's where the edge of the repetition compulsion is really being it is a lie yeah. at that moment and um, so it takes some I think uh, exposure to that edge to be able to tolerate it over time and so you just never really know for sure whether it's gonna work for people but things that I keep in mind are past group experience if they've had some introduction to that so that it's not quite as shocking for them and they have some tolerance built up for group. I think that really helps. Um, I think um, sometimes being in individual therapy with the group leader is helpful because they can come back to individual therapy and say, oh my gosh, this is what was happening for me in that group. And you, know, you wanna be careful because you don't want them to process so much in individual that they don't take it back to group. But at the same time, I have found that to be helpful to some people to be able to modulate and titrate the level of how stimulating it is for them in group. Um, and then other things, um, I think just being able to tolerate free association because these types of group that I do are more long-term psychodynamic, psychotherapy, you know, modern analytic even um, orientation. And so there's just, there is no focus there's no theme there's no the, the structure is very minimal and so people come in and this you know that's group you sit down you start talking and that's what's happening just what's happening in the here and now it's here and now and people there's no way to prep somebody for that they have no idea you can try your best to tell people it's very difficult to prep them they yeah. just it's like you just got to come in and experience it and then see if it works for you or not mm -hmm. and you try to you know we work also with the group around wanting to kill new members off because it's really a factor you know the likelihood that groups are gonna want to expel a new person like a family member when a new baby comes in the baby says you know the older kids say get rid of that baby you mm -hmm. know if they can put words to it if they're allowed to most kids don't really want that other sibling at they first. hate being displaced yeah <laughs> right <laughs> So um, 
that's you know a factor in group for sure and people um, you know struggle so we work a lot of prepping the group for a new member as well as trying to help somebody know what they're coming into as best you can mm -hmm. but really it's just the experience of it mm -hmm. and being able to tolerate it and as the group leader I think it's your job to be mindful of the ways that the group may unconsciously be organizing to expel the new person. So let's let's say you're leading a group and mm -hmm. you're seeing this. How do you intervene? You see a tremendous amount of aggression moving towards this new member. They're about to get scapegoated. Can you can you lead us through some of your strategies for handling a situation like that? I usually do some kind of group as a whole intervention where I get mad at the group. Um, where I might, you know, yell at them and say, my God, who knew that this is what you were coming into, you know? My goodness, these people, they're really uh, coming after you, aren't they? Or um, something like that. Like a common thing that group members will do in the beginning of a group is they'll say, oh, you know, I've been in this group for 10 years, or I've been doing this group for 15 years. Um, and, you know, it seems very benign. Um, they're just kind of, you know, reminiscing about their group experience. But the communication to the new person is, look how new you are, you know, look at how long we've been here, and this is our group, and, or it could be taken that way. It's a pretty intimidating thing to come in. And so sometimes just naming that and saying, you can talk a lot to the new group member. Oh, you know, the group really, when new people come in, they really like to let people know how long they've been mm -hmm. here. Establishing a hierarchy. Establishing a hierarchy. A pecking order. A pecking order yeah, that's yeah, yeah. not very conscious. So that might be an example. Um, you know, it's um, sometimes also working to find somebody who might be empathetic to the new person's experience and helping them to put some words to what they um, see happening. And that can sometimes be helpful too when mm -hmm. other group members call it out. And you know, it's pretty overt. We make it really overt. So the group, all groups of mine, when new people come in, it's an overt discussion about how they might kill the new person off. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're gonna talk about this. Everything gets talked about, we're gonna name this and address this and talk about it. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. And um, the new members are pretty onto sometimes their own stuff. Like, oh, this is what I do. You know, I take this up for the group. and. And I kind of say these things that nobody else wants to say. And, um, you know, sometimes group members will kind of lash out at somebody in the beginning. And so really calling that out pretty quickly um, and turning it back on the person. And sometimes I'll be tough on the person who lashed out and the other group members can come in and insulate that person. But I've hopefully done something that'll be insulating for the new person who's coming in. Mm -hmm. They need a lot of insulation in the beginning. Yeah. And when you're starting a new group, um, I think one of the ways to help titrate stimulation, and this is something I've really gotten from my husband, Francis, is um, being able to educate them as much as possible. And so I'll do more educating and more cognitive kinds of explanations in the beginning to help people, almost to train them as group members for what we're doing and how to do it. So. I tend to sometimes make it more um, overt uh, so that they understand how to do group mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I wanted to be sure to ask you about, it, we've been focusing a lot on the modern analytics side, which is obviously something I'm very passionate about and very, very interested in. 
what I've also really appreciated about being supervised by you is your experience with behavioral approaches with mm -hmm. DBT and as you mentioned you've studied with Marsha Linehan so I've noticed people it seems like have a tendency to either identify as more of a behaviorist or as somebody who's more psychodynamic psychoanalytic but you seem to really honor that there's room for both in working with somebody so I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that like how you reckon the differences between behavioral approaches and psychodynamic psychoanalytic approaches? Mm -hmm. Well, the way I'll say first that I see them together, because I think there is a similarity or there are similarities, I, I can see the repetition compulsion or as some people call it, the procedural patterns that, um, you know, that uh, people experience um, in behavioral chain analysis. So in behaviorism, at least in DBT, there's a focus of understanding what the cues are for behaviors that people do repetitively and then studying those. And so one of the things that Marsha Linehan talked about when I've done her trainings is that it's the therapist's job to, and you know, even with the client or with the team of people working with the person, to study the way that they have these chains of behavior responses that they do over and over and over again. And I think of it as being very similar to a procedural pattern where someone gets a cue to respond or react in the same old way and then goes through a series of behaviors that they typically do. And I think that they've even found in the limbic brain that there are these loops that people go into cognitively where when they get depressed or they get anxious or dysregulated, they go into these um, ways of thinking that are literally mapped out in the brain. And so the idea with repetition compulsion or with a chain analysis or with a chain reaction is to interrupt these behavior patterns. And so you can interrupt them uh, through long-term relational treatment and you can also interrupt them behaviorally. And so I like it because I think it sort of provides a more, I don't know, a stronger approach to treatment when you come at it both behaviorally as well as psychodynamically. I think you can interrupt it on multi-levels. And so um, I like to study the behavior patterns that people engage in, help them become more conscious of what they're doing so that from a DBT perspective, they're not continuing to engage in these treatment interfering behaviors that are really getting in their way or treatment ending behaviors that could kill them or something you know really serious like that mm -hmm. so um, I see them as similar and um, I view it as kind of different avenues to the same outcome of trying to change the way the brain is wired trying to give people new experiences reinforcing those new experiences either by how they're acting behaviorally or how they're interacting with people. So there's all these different options for interrupting really dangerous patterns for people. Some are more behavioral, some are more relational, but it's all about giving somebody an opportunity to have something new happen. Yes, yeah. and sometimes it's dangerous and then sometimes it's just really problematic. Yeah. So it tends to be the ways that people make trouble for themselves and that can be on more mild levels and that can be on more severe mm -hmm. levels. And given how experienced you are with group process and working with emotional immediacy, when you're in the context of a behavioral group that's more psychoeducation, do you find ways of bringing in the here and now, of introducing some process? How, how, do, you, how do you work with that based on the different structures of the groups that you're facilitating? 
a good question. Um, in DBT, I tended not to do a lot of it um, because I found that people were really there because they wanted to learn the skills and they were there because they wanted to get educated. There are sometimes people who pull for process when you're trying to do structure. Um, I would say with DBT, what I learned from Marsha Linehan the last time that I went to her training in 2011, she was on the stage and she was really free associating, talking about different stories from her life and telling ways that she learned this skill and how she practiced this skill and how she encourages us to teach it. And she really said that she teaches by telling stories and that if you're running a group and you're just kind of rotely going through all the methods of DBT, that it's pretty boring. Um, and that you to bring it alive and to make it real for people so that they get interested in it, she was more free associative almost in the way she told stories. I don't know if she would say that, but that was my experience. You guys her. might language it differently. We might language <laughs> it differently. Um, but um, she, you know, does do more, I would say, storytelling, and I think you could view that as a way to activate the right brain, that it's not just a methodical, you're going to come in here and learn this skill and do this and do that and have it be kind of boring. The idea is to be engaging in some way for people, and I think right brain is a, activation is a good way to do that in telling stories or doing something experiential is a way to, I think, help people integrate the skills in a different way. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm aware of this new project that you have going on with the collective. The, what is it? The Collective for Psychological Wellness? Yes. Would you tell us a little bit about that and what you're envisioning for that and what you're hoping that will be? Yeah. It's kind of blossoming at this moment into something, which I'm really excited about. I <clears throat> can sometimes have lots of ideas, so I don't know where it's all going to actually go, but um, I think my hope for the collective um, is that it's a, it's kind of, I have broken it down right now into three different areas. One being a group private practice setting where people in the community locally and Boulder and Denver and the surrounding areas can um, get psychotherapy for pretty reasonable rates and um, you know people who are supervised and consult with me and do trainings with me to work in the model that I use for more kind of long-term psychotherapy. Um, we also offer DBT groups here in Boulder for teens as well as adults and we are going to be offering um, DBT groups in Denver as well for teens and adults um, starting in September and um, so in the group private practice, it's individual, couples, family, we work with children, um, we do just kind of a real range of services. We're bringing in people who can do EMDR, we have an art therapist, we have an animal assisted therapist. Um, so we have a kind of range of different services that we can provide for people um, and parent coaching as well. And then the other um, two areas that I'm looking at and expanding in, one is something that I've called um, intensive team-based treatment. And so it's kind of a wraparound model for psychotherapy for people who are maybe in danger of going to a higher level of care or in assessment about whether or not that's what they might need, or for people who are coming out of outpatient programs or out of wilderness programs or even a more inpatient setting 
who need a higher level of care. Um, and so some of the services that we're offering there are things like mentoring, coaching, executive functioning, coaching, coaching academic coaching, um, even respite care for overnights. Um, we're doing kind of just a range of different things. And these services are available to people who already have a therapist in the community or they can use a, you know, a therapist through the collective as well. And so, um, so if somebody's in a therapy relationship outside the collective, but they think they want to do more mentoring, they could partner with the collective exactly. to have it offered. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll work with therapists in the community to do that. And I would say that the kinds of things that we're trying to do are, you know, independent living skill based, um, Again, the academic support that can be really important. One of the things that I think can be helpful about having a coach involved with academics is it can sometimes remove the parents from the you know, power struggles and things like that. Sometimes it's just easier to have an outside person help the client think about how to organize their school for that week or the assignments that they might need to do for that semester. And, advocate with them for the supports and the accommodations that they might need either in high school or on the campus. Um, so we're working with teens, adolescents, as well as young adults. And um, I'm trying to think what else we're doing. We're, you know, I, I would say that another piece of the collective that's really important to me personally, because I have such just a huge bias towards this, is I really believe in a holistic approach to psychology. Um, I really think that people get better when they pair things like talk therapy or behavior therapy with just wellness, healthy living. So um, looking at nutrition, looking at um, yoga, exercise, mindfulness practices. I think that for people to get better, it's a multi-pronged approach. You've got to have how you're eating is a factor, how you're sleeping is a factor, how you're exercising, if you're exercising, if you're practicing mindfulness or not. I've often found that the people who I work with who have the most severe dysregulation, the ones who tend to get better are the ones who have a mindfulness practice almost across the board. If they bring in a mindfulness piece, they get better. And so um, I really like to emphasize those things as well. And our mentors and coaches can help people actualize those things. They can put them into action in their lives. Wonderful. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, wow, that's something I really want to get involved in as maybe a provider or as, as a client, as a, uh, a patient, how would they get in touch with you or how would they find out more about the collective? We have a website and it's just www.collectiveforpsychologicalwellness.com. And then they can also look us up on Psychology Today through the collective as well. And um, I think that uh, I have a personal website now too under Elizabeth Olson. So there's a few different ways that people can get in touch with us. Mm -hmm. And um, you can call, there's you know numbers on the website as well. So, and we are definitely you know open to collaborating with other people in the community. I think the one thing that I didn't also talk about, it's my multi-million ideas that I have. Um, the other one is training, and so we're going to be offering a variety of trainings this fall for psychotherapists, and those include um, one with Christine Denning, who's going to do one on executive functioning and kind of a training for therapists and mentors around how to work with people who have executive functioning issues. She's created a model, and she's going to bring that to um, this training. 
And then we're going to be doing one on DBT, so foundational skills and the ways that I tend to teach DBT, some things that I think are helpful about it. And then um, we're going to do one on modern psychoanalysis and one on family therapy. Wow, incredible. I want to make sure to hear about all of those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, what comes to mind is it just sounds so comprehensive, and it sounds like you're really trying to offer a platform that's very integrative for people. It's not just talk therapy, it's kind of paired and linked with groups and with nutrition, and as well as even for therapists to have more of a comprehensive, a broader wealth of knowledge to pull from in their therapeutic work. Absolutely, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about it, Angelo. I'm just having a really good time putting it all together. So, and my hope at some point is to find a way to, I, I haven't kind of thought about where this is gonna go yet, but I really wanna do something to give back to the community in some way. So that's another piece that will come, and I don't know in what form yet, but that's really important to me as well. Well, as you say that, one of the things that's coming to mind for me is the COGPS conference in November. Yeah. And uh, will we be seeing you there? Is there a Hoping. chance you might be presenting there? Or? Hoping to, Great. yeah. I um, put my application in to be an institute leader, so hopefully that will happen. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, we just have another minute left, and one of the things that I like to find out from people I'm interviewing is if they would be willing to talk about what they see as their current edge as a clinician, as a group therapist, kind of what's inspiring them or what's challenging them that they're really trying to look at or work on in their clinical work. Mm -hmm. I think the area that interests me the most, um, that I get the most um, excited about and want to study more, is neuropsychology and the way that that interacts with talk psychotherapy and behaviorism. I'm just so fascinated with everything that we're learning about the brain these days and ways that as a therapist we can help people really change the way the brain is wired so that they can have a different experience. You know, when I started off in the field 20 years ago, I can remember there was just very little about that that we knew and even things like borderline personality disorder back then in the mid 90s, people really were saying, well, there's just nothing you can do to be helpful for people with this diagnosis. And just the explosion of information that has come out about affect regulation and emotional regulation and levels of stimulation and the you know importance of our early experiences and how that can shape people's lives. Um, I'm so fascinated with how to intervene with those things and to learn more about things like dissociation and um, self-states and the ways that people can just become a more integrated whole person and have their brain match that you know that the two really work together I think and and how you see change happen for people so that's probably the area that interests me the most mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. wonderful Elizabeth thank you so much for being a part of the uh, dispatch we've really enjoyed interviewing you Thanks thank you so Angela this was so fun to be here <laughs>